You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. I mean, this is the story of a king. And for me, I think kings and kingdoms, they fascinate me. I think we kind of have a bent in our minds and in our hearts about authority and kings and and our world kind of sets itself up to lift up a king. We see in scripture um, that the Israelites are fighting for a king. They want a king. I mean, that's kind of our MO. We, we, we desire somebody to lead. Um, I, I just think of all of the movies that are out there that, that we love and that we watch and that, that we put on our top five list. If you have a gladiator on your top five list, like, let me hear you. Gladiator? Okay. What about Lord of the Rings? Okay, I, I thought it would be bigger than that. What about uh, Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, this is, this is the class participation part, so I need to hear a little bit. Um, all right, Little Mermaid? Okay, all right, Braveheart? Oh, okay, all right. Um, you know, it's interesting because there's not many movies that we watch, though, with a good king. Like, I, was, I actually typed into Google, I was like, hey, what movies have a good king in it? And there weren't many that popped up. I mean, mostly they're depicted as, like, tyrants or, or these people that are, like, oppressing their people. Uh, they're heavy-handed, they're prideful, they're self-absorbed. I mean, really, what we have, we're left with is, like, Mufasa from The Lion King, um, right? We've got, uh, what is it, the Sultan from Aladdin, who's kind of, like, passive and, and wimpy. Uh, and then uh, T'Challa from Black Panther. I mean, he's a good king. Uh, if you even know what that is, you're like, you're speaking another language now, right? So I, I think that, that we normally would see kings in our culture um, as those that raise up into power and then abuse their subjects, take advantage of their subjects. They overtax them, and they live these luxurious lives at the hands of those that serve them. And... Each subject within that kingdom, they respond differently to this king, whether he's good or bad. I mean, they respond differently. Some, they love and they admire that king. Some enter the presence of the king with fear and anxiety. And and others with disappointment and even go as far as resistance, going against the king, trying to overthrow the king. And I know we don't have a king in America, and so like when we talk like kingdoms and, and kings, we're not necessarily thinking that that mindset, but we have authority in our culture. I mean, we need authority to keep, to keep some kind of chaos from, from not just exploding. I mean, we have our bosses, parents, teachers, law enforcement, the government, and I think ultimately, at the core, the essence kind of of who we are, we have a problem with authority. And I think one of the reasons is, is because we want to be the authority, I, I want to be the authority in my life. And, and if somebody else is going to come along and tell me what to do with my stuff and me and, and the things that I hold dear, then, then we've got a problem. Agreed? <laughs> right? We'll fight for that. I mean, we want to be our own authority. Or we tend to look to imperfect people to lead us perfectly knowing that they are imperfect and knowing they're going to mess up. And when they do, it blows our minds. Think about that. Like when our president or our governor or, or our boss 
makes a mistake, we're like, how dare they? They're imperfect people who are going to make mistakes, who are going to do things wrong. But Psalm 145 depicts a very different king and a very different authority. This is the God king. And this is not a fabricated king or a king that we've made up with our imaginations. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So here's how we're going to break this down today. And if you're taking notes, this is how it's going to look. Who is this king? What does this king do? And how are we to respond to this king? And we're going to spend a lot of time today in how we're responding to this king because that's how this psalm is written by David. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Jesus, to you be the glory. God, this is your word. You are articulating to your people who you are, what you have done. And you're giving us a glimpse in how we are to respond to you because of your great love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So David starts with this statement, I extol you, my God and King. Now this word extol really means, the, the, the literal translation is to be high. And another literal translation of that is rock. And so there's a word picture here with the word extol, because that, that's not a word that we normally use in our vocabulary. It, it is the picture that we see in The Lion King when, when uh, the monkey is holding up Simba, the new king that has been born. Right? This is kind of the picture that we're seeing. It's, it's this lifted up on a high rock so that everybody might see who he is and bow down in reverence. And even further, when he's saying my God and king, that word and there actually would be the. It's my God, the king. This is what David is proclaiming. It's not just this, like, he's my king, he's not your king. No, 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 he's actually making a statement. It's a definitive statement, is my God, the king. And so, who is this king? Well, there's a recognition that he is the ultimate authority. He's the end-all, be-all. That what he says goes. There's no questioning this king. And, and look at some of these things that, that play out. Who is this king? Verses 3 and 6, he is great. 4 through 6 and 12, he performs mighty deeds. Verse 7, he is good. 8 and 9, he, he is grace, mercy, and love. Verse 10 through 16, he provides for his people. 17 through 19, he is righteous. Verse 20, he provides protection. And this is not even an exhaustive list. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I mean, there's so many little things that we can pull out of these verses of who this king is. Now, when you look at this list, how could you not want to submit to this king? I mean, this is the, the absolute definition of who I would want to bow down in reverence to. He is 
great and mighty in deeds and good and grace and mercy and love and provides and is righteous and provides protection. Like this is the type of king that we all long for. This is the type of king we expect our president to be and we expect our governor to be and we expect our boss to be, but they will always fall short of those things. They will never meet that mark. But this king, over and over again, generation after generation, from the beginning of time, is this. These attributes define, he defines these attributes, he is these attributes. Like, I mean, it should blow our mind that when we come to church, like when we're singing out praises, praise to the Lord, like, like that's the Lord we're praising. And this is why we are praising that Lord. So now what does this king do? I mean, opposite of all the kings that we see in history, he treats his subjects very differently than the world. I mean, kings in all throughout history, like if you were to define what a picture is of a king, you see a throne, you see a crown, and you see treasures all around them. Like, kings are very wealthy. And how do they obtain that wealth? From their people. That's not what's true of this king. The king doesn't need your stuff. Why? Because he's created all that stuff and he's given it to you. He pours out everything that he is onto his people. He gives everything that he has to his people. He provides everything that we have, whether we think we have a lot or a little, has been provided by this king. Go like this. That happened because the king has allowed that to happen in your lungs. We are here today because that king has allowed us to be here. So, so what does this king, king do? He pours it out. All of these things, all the attributes that were just like the goodness, the deeds, like this, he, he pours it out onto his people. And I love how his fingerprint is on everything in our world. Our world, I mean, we create these movies, right, and we watch these things, but in everything that we watch and see and read, there's a thread of the gospel in everything. You can see it. In every movie I mentioned, you can see these threads of the gospel. All the way to the point where I was searching, because I was like, well, what are we looking for in, like, our bosses? And so I typed in, what makes a great boss? And Forbes magazine put out this, this article um, on what makes a great bo boss, seven attributes of a great boss. Let me read these to you, because I found this interesting. Great bosses are passionate. They're sold out to the mission and vision. They stand in front of the bus. It means they take the punishment. They play chess, not checkers, meaning that they're in it for the long game. That even though at one point they may lose a pawn, that's just one small piece of the larger puzzle that they're playing. They are who they are all the time. It means they're constant. They are a port in a storm, a refuge, a safe place. And they are human. And they are humble. Forbes magazine literally wrote out the gospel for us. And they didn't even know it. 
Like, because when you read this list in light of who God is and what he has done, he is passionate. He is sold out to his mission and vision. He takes the punishment. He's in it for the long name. He's constant. He's a refuge and a safe place. And he became human and dwelt among us. He left eternity and humbled himself to wrap himself in human flesh that got tired, that got hurt, that when he was doing woodworking, which is what he did, cut himself and he bled. And he was put on a cross. And he was nailed. And he died. But he didn't stay there. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know if the guy writing the article for Forbes magazine was thinking about Jesus. But when we talk about what this king does, he does everything we anticipate and expect and desire from all of our worldly authority to do. But he does it perfectly. Without fail, consistently, day in, day out, all the time. And David wrote about his mighty deeds, right? He's, he's talking about all the things that he has seen um, in his own life. I mean, this is the David that fought Goliath. This is the David that, that has done some hugely immense things, in, huge immense things in Scripture. Um, and then he's also recounting of all the deeds that he did for the people of God, the Israelites. And so he's recounting all of these deeds that he did for Moses and Abraham and Jacob. He's, he's recalling all of these things. And, and even for us, we see these things in Scripture. We see what God has done. And then we also see the fact that God sent Jesus and so David is writing this pre-Jesus, thinking about the day when the Messiah is going to come. We've actually had the ability to see the Messiah come and raise from the dead. And so we're not only recounting all of these amazing deeds that has happened in history, but we're recounting the fact that God sent his son, Jesus, to live a life that we couldn't live, to die a death we couldn't die, to raise from death so that you and I may have life. Like we're recounting and recalling that, and then we have a story. We have a story that God has given us where God has allowed us to see what he has done over and over and over again for us. And I know that there are some today that question it. Well, I, I just really haven't seen it. Well, here's what I want to say for those that haven't seen the Lord hand at work in your life. Place your faith in Jesus and it will happen. God will do mighty deeds in your life. He will. And he desires to. So maybe you can't recall right this moment, but he's about to do something big. So, who is this king? He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And what has he done? He has poured out all of who he is onto his people. So if the kid, king is who he says he is and does what he says he's going to do, then how do we respond to this king? Now, normally the response kind of comes in way at the end of the sermon, right? Where, where, where you're like, oh, this is, this is, we're going to be out of here quick. Um, there's so much here that we get to unpack on how we are to respond to this king. <clears throat> and first, I, I just want to make it clear, who are the subjects of this king? Like, who responds to the authority of this king? Because it's not just Christians. I, I just want to kind of make clear that when we talk about the king of kings, we're not just talking about the king of the Christians or the king of the Israelites. 
Like, he is the one who is in authority over all things. He's the one who orchestrates all things. He's the one who spoke and created things. That's the king that we're talking about here. So when we see verse 9, if you look at it, it says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Like, we realize and recognize that this king has authority over all things, even the people that don't submit to him as king. He's still the authority. Whether they want him to be their authority or not is not what I'm talking about right now. I'm saying that he still is in authority even if they don't want him to be because he is God and we are not. And, and so there is this call to surrender. Look at verses 1 through 3. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is is unsearchable. In verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling down and raises up all who are bowed down. This is a posture that we see. David's proclaiming it, but this is what's required. This bowing down, this surrender. And it's not just a one and done surrender. This isn't a get out of hell free card like you're playing Monopoly and you think, oh, I'm just going to kind of live my life and if I get into some trouble, I'm going to play the card. No, this is a daily remembering. That's when, when he's saying, every day I will bless you. This is a daily surrender to him as the ultimate authority in our lives. And this surrender is not for those who believe that they are perfect or can do it on their own. In fact, it's for a people that realize and recognize that they can't do it on their own. There is no perfect subject. There is no perfect person under the authority of the king. He is perfect. We are not. I mean, this Bible that we're reading here, I mean, it is a story of forgiven failures. And your story is true of the same as theirs. You're a forgiven failure. Because you're going to continue to mess up and you're going to continue to do things wrong but you have been forgiven because of what Jesus did on your behalf. And so, I mean, we just look at the, the whole, you know, David, the guy who's writing the psalm, the one that, that we can, can lift up. I mean, he was an adulterer, a murderer, and it was said that he was after God's own heart. Moses, a murderer, um, and God reveals himself through the burning bush. I mean, the disciples weren't cream of the crop. If you read this, like, they weren't, like, the sharpest and the brightest of the bright. I mean, you've got Paul, Jacob, Abraham, all called by God. But not everyone surrenders. But surrender is required. If we surrender to God as king, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, reveals who he is and what he has done. I want to read a couple of verses to you because I think this is really important to understand that the power of salvation lies in the hands of God alone and his authority and not ours. Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, you were dead. Guess what? Dead people can't surrender. But in verse 5 it says, Unless God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead, 
in our trespasses. That word trespasses means sin. Even when we were dead in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. So he gives us life. By grace, you have been saved. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. And that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I mean, there's such a beauty here in the idea that there is a loving God who woos us into relationship with himself, who opens up our eyes and reveals himself to us, not only through his word, not only through other believers, but through the world around us that we may know that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And there are those who will not surrender. There are those who will not, as verse 14 says, will not bow down. And this is both active and passive. Right? There's the one side that says, God's not real, I don't believe in God, I will not submit to God. That's, that's like the active side of, of people um, rising up in resurgence against the king. But then there's the passive side, which is the ones that are like, I don't know, whatever. That's kind of the passive side. I don't know, maybe. Like, I'm kind of indifferent about him. Maybe he's out there, maybe he's not, but I'm not actually willing to do the hard work to figure out if he is or not, or... I'm not, I'm not willing to, to really surrender the things that I want to surrender because I just want to be who I am and, and do what I want to do and I don't want anybody telling me what to do, what not to do. So there is an active and a passive side in this. And the Bible's clear that those that do not surrender will be eternally separated from everything we read in that list of who the King of Kings is and the Lord of Lords is. His greatness and his mighty deeds and everything that he has that is good and his grace and his mercy and love and his provision and his righteousness that he covers his people with and his protection, you will be eternally separated from him if we do not bow down and surrender to that king. And so when you have somebody in your life that is resisting the goodness of the Lord, instead of trying to um, convince them every time you're with them and trying to create uh, someone who's morally better, why don't you fall on your knees and start praying that the Spirit of God will transform their heart and mind? Why don't we start to, to engage them in conversations about his goodness and not what they're doing? We are very quick to, to try to get people to modify their behavior. But we're not very quick to talk about the goodness of the Lord and how he has changed and transformed us. You know, I often meet with people that are so fearful of telling their story about what the, the, like the, all the bad stuff that they've done in their life because they're afraid of, it's, there's shame and there's guilt. And I get that. I have it in my life too. But God has overcome all that. He has transformed all that. So we don't have to live in shame and guilt of all the things that were in our past because we are now redeemed. We are now children of the king. Like his grace covers us. His love covers us. His mercy covers us. Your story matters. And there are people around you 
every single day that need to hear your story because it's the story that God has transformed in your life and it tells about his goodness. We're so fearful that people are gonna think less of us. Man, please think less of me so you think more of him. I will mess up. I have messed up. I can, I can, we could do confession time. I'll tell you all the, the ways I've messed up this week. But it's not about me. It's about him because he has redeemed and transformed all of that. And it's out of surrender that we receive grace and mercy. And so surrender leads to worship. We worship the king. We see this in verses 1 through 5. We see this in verse 10, verses 18 and 19. What does he say over and over again in those verses? I will bless you. I will bless you. What is that? That's worship. Now, often I think in a church setting, especially in American church context, we, we, we use the word worship to define music. Yes, worship is song, but that's not all it is. Worship is everything that blesses his name in our lives. Everything we are, everything we do, serving him and his church with our time, our talents, our resources. It's, it's a joyful obedience to who he is and what he has done for us, and so we give it back to him. Um, does anybody have uh, a $100 bill I can borrow? Anybody? I need a hundred. Oh, hey. Thanks, Sayla. Who gave the pastor's kid a hundred bucks? Um, this was planted. I gave it to her before the service. So why would she even think twice about just walking up here and giving it back to me? It was mine to begin with. Everything I have belongs to him. This isn't her rent payment for this month. She's 11. I'm not requiring her to do all these things so that she could earn a spot in my home as my child. She is my daughter whom I love no matter what. I gave this to her. So willingly, she gives it to me. Everything, everything that we think we've earned in our lives, you know those businesses that you built or the, or the stuff that you've acquired, all of it is his because he gave you the breath in your lungs to even be able to have the stuff. He gave you the mind to be able to do the job. He gave you the smarts and the abilities and the hands and the feet and the words and the sight and the hearing to do all the things you do. And at any moment, he can take it back. It belongs to him. And so worship is us realizing and recognizing that it all belongs to him anyway. So we live our lives to bless his name. I will extol you. I will lift you up, my God and King. I will bless your name forever and ever. You know, I know that in a church in this setting, there are people in this room that don't like to sing. Agreed? I want to prepare you. You're going to be singing for all of eternity. So you might as well start now. There are people here 
that do love Jesus, that God has given the gift of salvation to, but you like your stuff, you like it a lot, and one day, it's not going to be yours anymore. So you might as well use it to serve him now. Because everything you have in eternity, it's going to belong to him. And you're not even going to, there's not even going to be a question when you're standing in his presence on what belongs to him and what doesn't. God gives us the church that we can have a continual reminder that it's not about us, <laughs> but it's about him. And that our lives are to be led as acts of worship as a, as a beacon of worship to him, the God and king of all things. And worship is seeking relationship with this king. This is what we're seeing in verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him and he hears their cries and saves him. This is a relational text. God wants you. He wants relationship with you. He wants you to know him. He knows you more intimately and deeply than anybody in all of creation will ever know you. All the stuff that you do in secret that you're hiding from everybody around else, he knows. He's there. He's present. But maybe and he still loves you. He still wants you. He still pursues so we worship the king. So there's, there's a response of surrender. There's a response of worship. And then there's a response of sharing about the king. I mean, look at verses 6 and 7. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare of your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. We share about the king. We do this in words and in action. Here's just a quick pastoral note. Um, we are quicker to invite people to church than we are to tell them about Jesus. I, I just want to, just for a moment, just share with you, please tell them about Jesus. Because when you come into a place and you don't know who Jesus is, and all they're doing is singing and talking about Jesus, it doesn't really compute so prepare them better. Please, tell them about Jesus. Don't invite them just to church. Is that a good thing? Sure. But people in our culture are actually way more uh, apt to listen about your testimony and your story and listen about the things of Jesus than they are the church because often the church has hurt them, which is sad. But, but let's, let's stop making the church the focal point. And let's start making Jesus the focal point because he is the focal point of the church. This then becomes where we could come together and worship him together. So the church is good, not belittling that. But I'm saying that he is the, he is the point. So we share him in words and actions. Now, now, often we also live in a society where we do a lot more about like help-based humanitarianism than we do about gospel proclamation. And so, yes, if someone is thirsty, give them something to drink. But that drink will run out and they will be thirsty again. So when you give them something to drink, tell them about Jesus. 
It's not just about humanitarianism in our world and our culture today. I love the fact that some of you are mowing your neighbor's lawn. Like, that's an amazing way to serve your neighbor, especially if they don't have the abilities to do that or if their lawn is just messy and they need to get their, and you're tired of looking at it, so you mow it. But tell them about Jesus because he is what's going to take them throughout eternity into his presence. Their lawn being cut one week is not. So uh, there, Francis, St. Francis Assisi, great man, great author, great writer, great early church father, but he made this statement, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. He was overemphasizing the deeds that the church should do for the community around him. Yes, but he's making an overstatement that's not in line with scripture, because the Bible tells us to use words. <laughs> like, blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. Good news is herald, it's spoken. David is talking, like, they will speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. He's not merely just talking about mowing his neighbor's lawn. He's talking about the fact that he is verbally telling them about his goodness. And so, we surrender to the king, we worship the king, and we share about the king. And kings are anointed. They are raised up as kings. So we're going to respond right now as, the, as, the, uh, as Ben's going to come back on up and start playing, I'm going to ask the whole rest of the band to wait until uh, we get to the prayer. Um, but I want us to enter into a posture of, of worship right now as we're going into singing this last song. And I want, to, I want to read to you the coronation of Jesus. So a coronation is where um, a king is brought up and then they're usually, like, they, they place the crown. We've just seen this in our, our, our world today, right? We saw this on TV uh, with England, right? So they, they, they pray, place the crown on their head. They have the scepter and, and something else they put in their hand. And, and, and then they, they declare, this is the authority. This is the king. And I want us, as, as his church, to sit and listen to how Jesus was coronated as king for us. Because it is the complete opposite of how kings in our culture are coronated. I'm going to read about the crown that was placed on his head. So what I'm going to ask of you to do is just to bow your head. And I want you to listen to this as I read this over us. And I want us to enter back into worship as a response to singing praises to his name because of what he has done for us and how he has poured out all of himself for you and for me. This comes out of Mark 15, verses 17 through 20. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Is he your king? Does your life mock him? Where's your life 
surrendered, worshiping and sharing the goodness of this king with every man, woman, and child around you. If for some reason you feel like the answer is that you spend more time mocking who he is than surrendering and worshiping and praising his name, there is forgiveness and love and mercy and grace at his feet. So in this moment, if you have never surrendered to Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you sit before him and say, you are king. My prayer is that every day that we wake up, we would daily be reminded by Psalm 145. And before our feet hit the ground, we would say, I will lift you up. I will extol you, my God, the King, and bless your name forever and ever. Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am sorry in the moments where my life hinders people knowing who you are and what you have done. So God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to transform me, transform us into who you desire us to be. That we would submit and surrender to your goodness, to your great name, to your holiness. That we would receive all that you are and that everything we receive, God, that we would pour that out into the world around us, that we would share of your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your love without compromise, Lord. God, I pray we wouldn't be people that bend your truth to make it more palatable, that we would be people that stand firm on your words, your gospel, and that our lives would be beacons of hope for the lost and dying world around us. You are the king. We are yours. I pray that our lives would be worship to you. Amen.